Now may the words of our mouth, the meditation of our hearts, be found acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I wanted to take you back a couple of thousand years ago and just remind you for a moment what took place after Easter. Easter, when Jesus rose from the grave, came back and showed himself to everyone. Well, it was shortly after that that uh, Jesus gathers his disciples up on the Mount of Olives, and he gives them some rather curious instructions. Now, normally we think of Matthew 28, but we're going to use Mark 16:15 today because he says, and this is the old King James Version, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, he says this to 11 guys who, at least up to this point, had not demonstrated in any measurable way a capacity to conquer much of anything, let alone conquer the world. In fact, when they found out that Jesus was about to face certain death, all but one of them bailed out. One of them actually committed suicide. One denied that he had ever known Jesus. The rest just ran for their lives, with the exception of John, who stayed until the end. But now Jesus has these 11 people gathered in front of him. He's about ready to have his own exodus back into heaven. He's telling this band of underachievers to go into the entire world and preach the gospel. Now again, as I think about this, I wonder how can 11 mostly uneducated men possibly overcome the distance barriers they would have to travel, the financial barriers, the language barriers, and even cultural barriers. It kind of sounds like Jesus was setting them up for what we would probably want to call mission impossible. I mean, how could this group of people possibly, well, honestly, be expected to go into all the known world? Well, it's kind of interesting because suddenly three things happened in rapid succession. It kind of turned the tide for the disciples. The first of these was the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, when somebody you know dies and comes back to life, I don't know, I think it's pretty easy to believe that they might have some power. Probably power over death. Uh, That maybe he is who he claims to be and that he can do whatever he says he can do. I mean, when somebody you know dies, I mean, just think about this. The last person you know who died, if they suddenly came back to life, it would be pretty easy to find the courage uh, to do what they might ask you to do. I mean, the resurrection gave the disciples some boldness, some courage that, at least before, they never had. The second thing that happened was this power of the Holy Spirit that came on them. Now, the last thing Jesus says to his disciples was, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Now, this is an important distinction to make here. The Christian life is not just a matter of following uh, the tenets of a creed, you know, that we believe that God is in heaven and Jesus is his son and we're supposed to be good. It's a whole lot more than that. 
The Christian life is a relationship with God through Jesus, His Son, in which the Spirit comes alive in you and dwells in you. It's what I always call when I teach in prison. He becomes the resident president. He takes over your life. He dwells in you. The Holy Spirit gives you the power to live the life that He has called you to live. You don't live in your own power. You really live by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the third thing was that happened was God's rather strategic timing. I like how the Bible always says, in the fullness of time. Now, the Greek has a couple of different words for time. You know, one of them is chronos, and the other one is kairos. Chronos, we get that word chronological, which means like 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, so on. 1953, 1954, 1955. But kairos means at just the right time. Boom! All of a sudden it happened. And so, here it was, at just the right time... Something happens. We see that the disciples are praying in an upper room. And it's during the Feast of Pentecost, which we're going to celebrate in a couple of weeks here. It's an important day on the Jewish calendar. And so thousands of people descend upon uh, Jerusalem from all over the world. And suddenly, as they are gathered in this upper room praying, you suddenly hear this sound of a mighty rushing wind. And... Everyone in the room began to speak different languages, all the while while they had little flames sprouted from the top of their head. Now, I don't know about you, but there's some stuff in the Bible I just think, hey, man, that's got to be cool. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to see that, Mary Claire? Fire on the top of people's heads and everybody start jabbering in all kinds of languages you never heard of. Now, that'd be really cool. Well, what happened was, this was such a commotion going on in this upper room that all of these people started coming, and now is where you get this Bible reading that some of you hope that you never get assigned to read in church because it said that they came from Camp, you know, Cappadocia and Pamphylia and Phrygia and Laodicea. You know, all of those words that you, you'd have a hard time pronouncing, okay? Well, they, they came to see what was going on. And when they got there from all of these different places around the world, they found these uneducated backwoods Rednecks, if you will, from way up in Galilee, talking in languages that were their own hometown languages. That certainly got everybody's attention. And this is at the point when Peter kind of takes control of the situation. He's got everybody's attention. And so he quiets the crowd down long enough to preach a sermon. Now, his sermon is nowhere near as long as mine's going to be today. I don't know, maybe this should be a lesson to me, because his sermon was short and he got 3,000 converts. What would happen if, we, if every pastor in America would shorten their sermons and get 3,000 converts every Sunday? I guess what would happen? I guess Jesus would come back. Well, 3,000 people get baptized, and just a few days later, what happens? These 3,000 people all go back home to Pamphylia and Phrygia and Laodicea and all of those places that are talked about in Acts chapter 2. They got this newfound faith, and suddenly they're starting to tell other people about what happened in Jerusalem. Well, if we use modern terminology, the gospel just went viral. You know, we have, we have uh, YouTube videos today. They go viral. Boom! Just like it, they're all over the place. I mean, suddenly Jesus' command to go into the entire world and preach the gospel doesn't seem so much anymore like mission impossible. Impossible. 
And thanks to Pentecost, there was this core of believers, 3,000 plus whatever happened to be in Jerusalem at that time. They were ready to receive the, the uh, apostles wherever they went in the coming years. And what we know from reading our Bible, we're going to be looking at more of this in this series in the days, the weeks, the months that follow Pentecost, this Jesus movement. Remember we talked last week about the Jesus people. They, uh, they exploded with brand new growth. No longer were they churches that added one here and lost one here and added one here and lost three here. They suddenly were multiplying in their growth. Uh, there were conversions. There were miracles. There were people that were sharing their possessions with one another. Demons were being cast out left and right. The Bible says that the, the Lord added to their number daily. Now, I don't know of very many churches in America today that actually add members daily. Pretty good if you can add members monthly or twice a year or at the end of the year you say we gained more than we lost or buried or whatever. Now, we're in a series that I'm calling Mission Possible. It's about how the early church changed the world, changed the culture in which they lived. And also, I, I, I want you to understand that it's my prayer that this church too, even this little church called First Lutheran Church, can somehow change the world in which we live in. Now, these first verses kind of give us an insight as to how to do it, how we need to think and how we need to act. I mean, ask yourself for a moment, what kind of a church uh, makes a difference in their community? What kind of a person actually makes a difference in the classroom that they find themselves sitting in? What kind of a person makes a difference in the workplace where God has placed them? Well, the text shows us that there are really three things to do. Three things that we need to do, not only as a church, but three things we need to do as individuals. Here's the very first thing we need to do. We need to talk about Jesus more than every, everything else. A number of years ago, somebody told me, you know, that you could go to most churches in America, stand in the lobby, close your eyes, and you could figure out what's most important to them. And I thought, I wonder what, that, what, what, what he meant by that. He says, you know, you go stand in the lobby of some churches after church, and what are they talking about? They're talking about whether LSU can win a football game or whether they won or lost. Uh, they're talking about their longhorns. They're talking about what's for lunch. They're talking about can we beat the Baptists to the buffet again. Uh, there are all kinds of stuff like that. He said, but you can walk to other churches, you stand in the, in the lobby, and what are they talking about? They're talking about what the Lord did that last week. They're talking about what Jesus did in their place of work. They're talking about how Jesus changed the lives of people. Now, that's kind of an oversimplification. And I'm not saying you, you know, that's necessarily true, but sometimes you can tell what's going on by what people talk about. The members of the Sanhedrin says here in verse 28, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching about him. I mean, this group of people were so well known, they were the people that talked about Jesus. See, the message of the early church was about Jesus more than anything else. Uh, their message was pretty clear. Jesus is the answer. They didn't talk about politics. They didn't talk about social issues. They didn't talk about cultural wars. They didn't talk about how you should vote, uh, where you should shop, uh, which companies you should boycott. Uh, they just 
kind of just talked about Jesus. Now, it's just my observation, uh, it's just in my life, that whenever the church has kind of had a choice between political power and spiritual power, all too often they choose political power. And almost always, a church getting involved in politics, it backfires, gets them into trouble. See, the, the object of the church is not really to be a political force. Neither is it our overriding purpose to get the right kind of people voted into office. Uh, it's our purpose to do what? To preach the salvation through Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world, encouraging people to receive him as their Savior and then to help them follow him as Lord. That's the purpose of the church. Now, I'm as guilty as anyone of violating this at times. Because sometimes uh, we preach as if we just want people to accept family values into their heart. Or to get people to join a certain political party or to vote a special way. Or sometimes all we're trying to do is convince fish in one aquarium to join the other fish in another aquarium. All we're trying to do is get people to swap shepherds to move from one flock to another flock, and and nothing's happening. God's not gained or lost anything in the process. Now, i got to tell you, family values are important. But our message goes way beyond that. Our message, more than anything else, is simply about Jesus and his power to save people. Now, as a church consultant, I've listened to a lot of sermons in my day, and I still, every once in a while, when I hear about a church, I go to their website, and I'll listen to a sermon. Sometimes I've actually watched an entire service online. And sadly, I've seen some worship services where the name of Jesus is hardly mentioned. Now, I would never, ever want to make that mistake. I mean, when people come to First Lutheran Church, uh, the point is not to make them Lutherans. That's kind of a fringe benefit, if you will, down the line. The purpose is for them to know Jesus so they can become Christians so they can become Christ followers. I want, to, I want them to hear the name of Jesus in the sermon. I mean, how many times have I even said the word Jesus so far today? You get the general idea. It's part of the message. You hear Jesus in the music. You hear Jesus in the prayers. You hear Jesus in conversation. I mean, it's through Jesus that we have forgiveness of sins. It's through Jesus we have peace. It's through Jesus we have purpose. Now, his teachings are the greatest I've ever heard. I mean, I've studied under a lot of great teachers. I've read a lot of books by great teachers. But, you know, almost all the ones I ever read, what are they telling me? They're telling me what Jesus said. And that's what I appreciate. I mean, the question is sometimes, how can we not talk about Jesus? I mean, if we want to make a difference in our community, if we, then we just need to make sure we talk more about Jesus than anything else. Here's the second thing. We need to honor God above everything else. Now, the Sanhedrin, that's the political power of that day, in verse 29, says, we gave you strict orders not to preach in his name. And then Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. Now, up to this point in history, up to this point in history, it is extremely rare when it comes to the law in the United States, that you have to choose between obeying God and obeying men. Now, I, I know some churches that tried to play 
this card in, re, in regards to zoning laws or ordinances related to public assembly, but this is not really what this verse is all about. See, we can preach the name of Jesus in this country without government intrusion. We don't have to defy the government in order to be faithful to the message of Jesus, and for that, we can be grateful. We ought to thank God for that each and every day. But many of you know it's not that way everywhere. There are Christians throughout this world uh, who do have to choose between obeying God and obeying the government. And as a result, many of these people sacrifice their very lives or their families or their way of life. And we should never diminish the sacrifices these people make in the name of Jesus and the dangers they fail, uh, they, they claim, by being persecuted just because they're expected to follow government rules instead of the Lord. So we don't need to choose that. But sometimes, and some of you know exactly how this works, sometimes at work, sometimes at school, sometimes in your neighborhoods, you have to choose between obeying God and obeying your boss or maybe somebody else. This usually isn't the matter of risking jail. Uh, more often, it's just you really would kind of like to fit in in your classroom. You'd kind of like to fit in in your neighborhood. You'd kind of like to fit in in the place that you work. We want people to like us. Uh, we want that promotion that's sitting out there. And sometimes it's kind of hard to resist questionable practices. But I want to tell you that as believers in the marketplace, here's how you change the world. When we approach our jobs with an attitude that lets everyone know, gently and respectfully, that we will honor God above all others, believe me, believe me, people will notice. I know I've shared this example before, but I, I always think back to our daughter, Terry, who works for one of the, the largest accounting and personal services company in the world. Works in this, sometimes in a big building, downtown Dallas, the one that's got a hole in it. And she sometimes wondered whether there was a piece missing in that business. And initially, when she went to work for them, she, she thought that maybe she was the only Christian who was working there. Yeah, kind of like Elijah. Didn't he one time think he was the only one left to? God had to tell him, we got a few thousand scattered around. But one day when the lady came to her and said, Terry, can we sit down and talk to you? Because you're different. You're different. Well, those of you who know my kids, they are different. After all, they're related to me. <laughs> it's like, what's with you, Terry? You're always happy. You're always kind of positive. You're always very helpful. And at that point, Terry says, come on in and let me explain it. And she talked to them about Jesus. Now, the upshot of that all, some of you may remember, that lady was baptized. Her children were baptized. And I think that lady's husband even began coming back to church. That's what happens when you gently and respectfully Honor God above all other people, people will notice. They'll notice. Here's the third thing. We need to love people more than anything else. First church I was a pastor of, we had a 
kindergarten through eighth grade school. And they used to sit with the faculty devotions every morning. And I remember having a teacher, and some of you that are teachers will probably resonate with this a little bit. They, they, one of them said one day, school wouldn't be so bad if it weren't for the kids. Well, <laughs> I've heard that. I've heard pastors say, you know, church would be okay too if it weren't for the people. Now, I've never said that, but uh, I've heard a few. Uh, it's like, haven't you forgotten something here? What are the two great commandments? Love God with all your heart, body, mind, soul, and then what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, they went to nitpick, who's my neighbor? Because in the Old Testament, uh, Jews are only required to love Jews. And when Jesus said, no, we'll take Gentiles too, they just about had cardiac arrest. They love everybody. Now, Peter's talking to these religious people again in verse 31. It says, God exalted him, that's Jesus, to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. See, the driving motivation for Peter and John and the apostles was to see people get saved, to see people come to Jesus. And when they encountered this risen Jesus, now, I wasn't there but I, I wonder if these disciples, when they didn't see Jesus walk through that door, just kind of without the door being open, when they saw Jesus, when Thomas touched him and felt all that kind of stuff, I, I wonder if one of them did, didn't kind of go, "Woo, <laughs> this is real." I mean, his teaching, his uh, his promises, the, the the way of life he's been talking about. He wasn't kidding. I mean, all those things he seemed. Well, it seemed a little bit out there. Uh, you know, like when, when, when he said that uh, he was alive even before the days of Abraham or when he claimed to be equal to God or when he said he was the only way to the Father. Oh, man, this resurrection proved it. I mean, and when, when he talked about if somebody slaps you in the face, turn the other cheek, I guess that seems to be valid. I mean, this is real and people need to hear this. They need to know this. They need to, a chance to experience this Jesus like we do. Now, I don't know if anybody said that, but I have a sneaking feeling it kind of went on the back of a few heads that, wow, this is worth telling other people about. Now, there's a phrase that you used to hear all the time, and I think there's a screen here. It, it was this little phrase, God loves you and so do I. Now, I've seen some different things. God loves you and I'm trying as hard as I can. Same kind of thing, but God loves you and so do I. Now, uh, church consultation works. Sometimes we ask churches to write a philosophy of ministry. And I sometimes think the most simple philosophy of ministry any church could have is that. God loves you and so do I. Yeah, we ought to be able to say that to anybody and everybody. God loves you and so do I. I mean, that's the reason the early church changed the world. That's the reason the early church changed their little villages. It changed their families. I mean, not only did they proclaim the name of Jesus, not only were they willing to stand up for God and even die, they also loved people. And it wasn't just people like them. It was all kinds of people. You know, I mean, you, you see how this works even in Acts 2. We're not going to look at this story per se, but it said it got to the point where believers were actually selling their property and sharing it with people who had genuine need. In Acts chapter 6, you can see where they uh, organized to distribute 
food and to uh, minister to the needs of people so that nobody in the church was overlooked. And you see it when the early church met and they sent Paul out, they blessed his ministry and they said, go, but make sure you take care of the poor. See, the church from the very beginning has always been about taking care of people. The church demonstrates God's love by, by what it does. Now, I don't know. This is what I think. I think all of us, all the way from the little ones here in the front, all the way to the little ones way in the back, need to consider some questions. I think I have them up here on the screen. Here's some questions you need to think about every day. How am I showing other people God's love? How am I doing it? And what am I doing to serve other people, to bless other people, to minister to others? Now, minister, we get confused by that sometimes. We say, well, we already got us a minister. Let him go minister. Well, ministry is very simply doing something for someone else in the name of Jesus. And ministry can be anything. Now, I think Pam escaped with the little one here before. But I happened to see Ed, Eddie and Pam mowing the lawn the other day. That's, you know, that's ministry. It's doing something for some other people in the name of Jesus. You're doing it for the church. But in another way, you're saying to the church, we, to the people who drive by, we take care of this place. Make it look nice. Jason's going to be leaving here about a week, huh? Wednesday to Cuba. We're going to pray for him before he goes. He's going to be involved in ministry. Now, he thinks he's going to go down and hammer a few nails and screw in a few screws or something, slap a little cement on something, and then put a sign up that says, Christian Construction Company did this. <laughs> but he confessed to me he's got to lead devotions down there. He confessed to me he's going to have to preach a sermon. That's why he's been studying me the last couple of weeks and having Susie take notes. I think she's giving him this sermon later. <laughs> but that's ministry. I don't care if all you did was just go down and build something for somebody else in the name of Jesus. That's ministry. That's what God has called us to do. And, and that's loving people you wouldn't normally see. How many Cubans do you know in Texarkana? None. Well, you're going to see more than you shake a stick at. It's going to be different. See, we're helping people. We help people in the name of Jesus. And this is a question not only do we, do we individually need to ask, we need to ask this as a church. I mean, every church needs to resist the temptation and aggressively fight the tendency to become only about buildings or only about budgets or only about constitutions or only about maintaining the machinery of some organization without ever actually accomplishing anything. We don't want to be a church like that. See, Jesus said in Matthew 23, the greatest among you must be a servant. I mean, you serve other people in the name of Jesus. It's because of Jesus you do this. That's our calling, not only as a church, but it's our calling as individuals. I mean, each one of us, again, I say, would do very well to say, how am I showing God's love to a world I live in? And who am I serving? See, the early church made a difference because their message centered on Jesus. Now, you don't need to run up to somebody and say, hey, I want to bless you in the name of Jesus. You don't need to do it that way. You just go up and bless them. Let them ask. Open the doors. They talked about Jesus more than anything else. Yeah, we need to be a church, too, that talks about Jesus. 
You know, the early church made a difference because they were willing to take a stand and were even willing to suffer for what is right. Now, I'm not a prophet, but I think there's going to come a day, and it's going to come pretty quick, where the church, Christ's church, is going to be called on to take some firmer stands on some things that are going on in our world today. And believe me, when we take a stand on some things that the world feels is right today, we will not be the most popular people in this world, let alone in Texas, let alone in Texarkana, let alone in our neighborhood, or let alone sometimes in our very own families. But we need to be a group of people who are determined to do what's right according to God's Word, no matter what. And the early church made a difference because they cared. They wanted to see people saved. They wanted to see people grow. They wanted to see people fed. They wanted to see people being taken care of. They loved people. I almost said more than anything else because you can't love other people more than Jesus. My prayer is that we be a church that serves the people of this community. We can do that in a variety of ways. It doesn't have to be organized. It can be individual. It can be as a church. But we do it in the spirit of Jesus. And I truly believe that when we do that, we end up, and maybe we'll never see where Lord of Life ever, where First Lutheran ever changed the world. But we can change this part of the world. After all, who are we? We are people who are saved by grace, through faith, for service in the name of Jesus. And may God bless that.